It's another thing to create survival kits known as bug-out bags and to have basements fully devoted to stockpiling imperishable food, water, linens, beds, and other necessities that they're able to live off of for not just a month or even just a day, but even just for years live off of these very things. Among the ultra-rich, they've been known for building multi-million dollar bunkers fully furnished and stocked with food for when doomsday comes. And those survivalists don't know when or if it will all go down. One thing is for sure, whether it's Y2K or a worldwide pandemic or a world-ending calamity, they are going to be prepared for it. In our text today, the Apostle Peter tells us that the end is near and that we need to prepare to suffer as Christ did. And though we don't know the exact day when Christ is going to return, we do know that he will return. And so as we wait, the Apostle calls us not to be paranoid, but to be, pre- be prepared to suffer so that we might live for God's will until the end comes. So how do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about today. That's what Peter is going to be guiding us through in 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor who feel the strangeness of being a Christian under the watchful eye of Rome. And not only that, but those living under Rome's influence clearly do not share the same values that Christians have under the Roman Empire. They didn't look at the world the same way and act the same way. They were driven by different things. And these Christians in what is modern-day Turkey, they're feeling the pressure of their strangeness. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them to stand firm in the grace of God that he has shown to them in their salvation in Jesus. And he begins his letter by reminding them of who they are by the grace of God. Who are they? But in chapter 1, looking there at verse 1, they're chosen exiles. They've been chosen. They've been adopted into God's family. They're citizens of Christ's kingdom. But in the world, they're still exiles. They're still strangers. They're a people who live between two worlds. They live for the city of God while dwelling in the city of man. Right? We can imagine what this feels like. It's like an expat who lives and works outside of their native country. Their life may look normal, but they still feel like a fish out of water in a foreign land. It's like a refugee living in a land that's not their own, and they're having to adapt to it. Though they're not able to go back, there's a piece of them that misses it and that longs for home. In a different context, we can feel out of place because customs are different and the people are unfamiliar, even more so for the Christian. And so in this letter, Peter is teaching us how to live as a citizen of heaven when you're still a citizen of Rome or of the United States or of a different country altogether. Our text today is the conclusion to the body of the letter that began in chapter 2, verses 11 in 12, where Peter exhorts these believers to abstain from sinful desires and to conduct themselves honorably among the Gentiles. They're to do this by submitting to those in authority over them, even when they're mistreated for it. 
that when we do what is good and suffer for it, if we endure, this actually brings with it the very favor of God. But how do we prepare ourselves for such suffering whenever it comes? That's what Peter turns to in our passage. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 together. Listen as I read the text. Therefore, Christ, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I think the main idea that Peter is getting at in 1 Peter chapter 4, in this text right here, is this. That we're to embrace suffering like Jesus by leaving sin behind to live for God's will. Peter is calling us to embrace suffering like Jesus, by leaving sin behind to live for God's will. I'll say that one more time. Embrace suffering like Jesus by leaving sin behind to live for God's will. And Peter really gives us two big picture ways to prepare for suffering as Christ did, and those are going to serve really as our two points. And so point number one Is going to be leave sin behind. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 6. And then in point number 2, we're going to look at living for God's will. So leave sin behind and live for God's will. Let's look at point number 1. Leave sin behind there in verses 1 to 6. Growing up, probably all of us in here had someone who had prepared us for some aspect of life. Coaches prepared us for working hard and working with others, using teamwork throughout life. Teachers prepared us for jobs and professions. Parents or loved ones prepared us for adulthood. But did anybody actually ever prepare you to suffer? Did they prepare you to suffer? That's what Peter does here. 
And the first thing that he tells us to do is to resolve to think like Jesus. We need to resolve to think like Jesus. He says there in verse 1, you can just look right there. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Now, Peter is really concluding in applying his argument from the previous passage. If you just look back there in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, Peter made the point that Jesus suffered unjustly to bless unrighteous sinners by bringing them to God. And through his obedience to the Father, the Father then vindicated him by raising him from death to life. And so Peter is encouraging us by showing us that Jesus' suffering in victory secured our own victory through suffering that we are going to endure in this life. And Peter is saying that if this was the pattern of our Lord's life, then this is also going to be the pattern of our life. As master, so disciple. The pathway to our eternal reward goes through suffering. And he tells us the first place that we've got to begin in preparing for such suffering is by preparing our minds for it. We've got to arm ourselves with thinking like Jesus. The word for arm right there in verse 1 is a military term. It speaks about preparation for battle. It's like a soldier preparing for battle. They have to get their mind right. If they're not thinking about the mission, but instead they're thinking about how to avoid getting shot, it's going to make it a whole lot harder (laughs) to get through that mission. They've got to remember all the different action, the plan, and all the different steps to execute that plan and to execute that mission. It's similar for the Christian. We prepare for suffering by knowing that it's inevitable for anyone who lives in obedience to God. It's inevitable. But just as suffering is inevitable, so is future glory. So is future glory. So if you think that the Christian life is about comfort, it's about convenience, it's about acceptance, and making everything as easy as possible, then Peter is saying you're actually not prepared to suffer like Christ. That that's not what the Christian life is really all about. You're not thinking like Jesus. If you're united to him in faith, then you'll identify with him in suffering. But why do we arm ourselves with this kind of thinking? Why do we do this? Well, Peter gives us the reason. He says right there, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Peter isn't saying that the suffering person is a sinless person, as if suffering just kind of makes you perfect, right? That would go against, that would be contrary to the testimony of Scripture. He's clearly not saying that. Instead, what Peter is saying is that when you're willing to suffer for Christ rather than serve your sinful desires, it's then that you are finished with sin. When you're willing to suffer shame for Jesus rather than cave to sinful peer pressure, that everybody is calling you to, then you're finished with sin. When you understand that Jesus didn't suffer to make you miserable, but died to purchase an inheritance far more pleasurable than any sin, then you're going to want to be finished with sin, and you're going to want to embrace suffering as the pathway to glory. 
I love the way that Matthew Henry makes this point from really the perspective of Jesus. He says that Jesus could cheerfully submit to the worst sufferings, yet he could never submit to the least sin. Jesus could submit to the worst sufferings, yet he could never submit to the least sins. Friends, we prepare for suffering with the resolve that we would rather submit to the worst suffering than the most minor sin. Is that the resolve of your life? Would you be willing to submit to the harshest sufferings than submit to the most minor sin? Do you have a greater desire to fit in with the sins of the culture than to actually be finished with sin and instead mocked by our culture for doing so? Answering those questions is really going to give you clarity on whether or not you're prepared for suffering. But what does it look like to be finished with sin? I think that's the question that Peter seeks to answer. What other weaponry do we need to arm ourselves with thinking like Jesus? What do we need? Well, Peter gives us the answer there in verse 2. We arm ourselves with this understanding in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. The goal of suffering, the goal of thinking, about suffering like Jesus, is that we would what? We would live like Jesus. That's the purpose of our suffering. We resolve to be finished with sin by leaving sin behind and living for God's will. Right? So let's think about the first, let's think about the first part of that, right? Living for God's will. Let's think about that first because we're going to come to that in the second point. I'm going to spend more time on leaving sin behind. So the first way that we seek to be finished with sin is just by living for God's will, right? We're going to consider more of this in point two. But I think what we need to do is we need to understand what Peter is actually getting at whenever he talks about God's will. One of the ways that Peter actually speaks about God's will throughout this letter is by putting it in contrast to sinful desires and passions. So for instance, back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, if you want to flip there, I'm just going to work through the text. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Peter calls us not to be conformed to the desires of our former ignorance, but to be holy like the one who called you is holy. Skip over to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He tells us to rid ourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, but instead to desire the pure milk of God's word. And then later, just a couple verses later, just a couple verses down there, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter he charges us to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against our soul and instead to conduct ourselves honorably before the Gentiles. Living for God's will means living a holy life that aligns with God's word. That's what it means. That's what it's getting at. Living for God's will means living a holy life that aligns with God's word. And this is how we prepare for suffering. It's how we arm ourselves with the same understanding of Jesus in suffering. He didn't suffering, he didn't sorry, he didn't suffer because he sinned. He suffered because he was without sin in order to pay for our sin. Jesus lived the will of God. But in order to do so, 
we also need to leave sin behind. We can't live for God without leaving sin behind. And that brings us to the second aspect of how we can be finished with sin. We've got to leave sin behind. All of us come into faith with a pre-existing history. We have a pre-existing history of sin whenever we come to faith. And in verse 3, Peter lists some of those sins of the Gentiles that his Christian audience once associated with before Christ. Notice how they're related. He begins with unrestrained behavior, which in the scriptures always is speaking about sexual morality. And that informs how we understand other sins in that list. He goes on to say evil desires, lustful cravings. I think it has a sexual background to it, which is why he heads off the list with unrestrained behavior. He mentions drunkenness, orgies. There's another one, carousing. Carousing, speaking to drinking parties. Drinking, partying, sexual sin. Not only are they common in our day, they were very common in the Greco-Roman world. And often, these things, drinking, partying, sex, they go hand in hand. But what's important for us to see is how these are related. He describes this immoral lifestyle as lawless idolatry. Immorality is the fruit of idolatry. Immorality is the fruit of idolatry. When you worship something other than God, or you love something other than Jesus, then you have found an idol in your heart. You found an idol in your heart. And oftentimes those idols reared their ugly heads in immoral living, like the list that Peter just said a moment ago. Now understand, you may not be participating in orgies, but do you fantasize about sexual sin through shows or social media? You may not be looking for the next drinking party to get wasted, but when you do drink, do you tiptoe that line on drunkenness? Right? You know yourself. You know what's, in, what's within you. Friends, Peter's asking us whether or not we've left sin behind or the vestiges of sin are still remaining within us that we have not repented of, nor are we even seeking to repent of. Is your sin more precious to you than following Jesus? Maybe you've not made a decision to follow Christ, and so you're still living like Peter describes the Gentiles here in verse 3. You're choosing to do what you want without an awareness that you're actually going to give an account to the God who is going to judge both the living and the dead, as Peter says there in verse 5. If so, this passage is actually a warning to you. Your sin is not inconsequential. It enslaves you. It separates you from God, and it pays you in the currency of death, and it blinds you to God's mercy for you in Jesus. That's what sin gives you. Living for your sin may give you a taste of pleasure for the moment, but it will forfeit your hope of everlasting joy and pleasure for all eternity. But the good news for you is that you can actually leave your sin behind by looking to Christ, who made an end to all of your sin through his own death and resurrection. His death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin, and his resurrection 
guaranteed your hope of fullness of life beyond sin and suffering for all eternity. But you can only be finished with sin when you actually look to the one who declared on that cross that it was finished. That's the only way you can be finished with sin. You've got to look to the one who put a finish to your sin by declaring it is finished. So leave your sin and look to Christ and receive the mercy of God in preparation for suffering. For the Christian in the room, we need to assess our own lives and ask whether or not the sins we once associated with before Christ are still alive and active within our lives today. As if we've just kind of like fallen over and just let them run all over us. Those besetting sins. Peter says that there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. He's saying enough sin already. Enough is enough. Enough already. That time was sufficient for that. It doesn't matter if it was years worth of sin before Christ or even just one day. One sin is one too many. Enough with sin already. We can't live for God's will when we're living for our sin. And so, friends, we prepare for suffering by resolving to leave sin behind. And when we do, you may actually lose friends for it. Look at there at verse 4. Peter says, they, those Gentiles that you once ran with, are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. The example of this that keeps coming back uh, to my mind is even just from my own life, which I mean, I think some of you have actually probably already heard before. But it's a perfect example, I think, of verse 4. Shortly after I became a believer in college, I started receiving flack for it. I became known as the guy that wouldn't go out with all the other guys in my fraternity house anymore. And so they began to slander me because I wasn't going out with them in the mo- anymore. Right? Because I had left my sin behind, they were not leaving me alone about it. And they were letting other people know about it, including me. And they were slandering me all over the house for it. They no longer invited me to those parties. They were looking to me to hang out. Trey's a fuddy dud. He's weird. Who actually lives that way in this house? You get the point. And interestingly, thinking of me as weird and strange and everybody else, I'm sure you've probably got similar stories, right? If you come from a non-Christian background with non-Christian family members, I'm sure you probably have felt the exact same thing. But interestingly, that's exactly what the word surprised in verse 4 is getting at. It means to be surprised at something that is strange. Increasingly, with our post-Christian culture, people are not going to applaud you for leaving your sin behind to live for God's will. For those coming from, whether it's a non-Christian family or even those of you, they're going to be more ingrained uh, in non-Christian circles. You're going to feel that more than anybody. They're just not going to invite you to stuff. They're going to look at you as not one of them because of that. But Peter is calling us to actually be strange. He's calling you to be weird, to be who you are. That's who you are. You didn't know you were coming into a sermon where I was going to sit here and tell you, you are strange. All of you are weird. You're weird if you follow Jesus. 
But that's what Peter's calling us to be. That doesn't mean being socially awkward. That's not the kind of strangeness that he's talking about. It means that you live distinct lives from those around you, that the will of God dictates your life over the will of man. And is this not why Jesus called us to be salt and light in the world? If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, salt and light are influential not because the world is full of light, or else light really wouldn't be that influential. It wouldn't be that distinct if everything was just light. It's precisely because we live in a world of darkness that light is distinct and distinguishable from that darkness. You don't impact the world for Jesus by being like the world. You do so by leaning into your strangeness. I love the way that Glenn Scrivener put it. I think he puts it well. He says, the church has been potent precisely when it has been peculiar. Anyone standing against the evils of their day, like gladiatorial games or infanticide or pederasty or slavery, was considered crazy. And they were all the more crazy for the preaching and theology that undergirded such campaigns. Nevertheless, they let their light shine before others, and the peculiar proved to be potent. So brothers and sisters, we embrace suffering as Christ did by being strange. And if you suffer for it, you need to remember your comfort and the confidence that God has actually given to you in verses 5 and 6. And so look right there. What actually served as a warning to the non-Christian is actually a comfort and our confidence as Christians in verses 5 and 6. In the first century Greco-Roman world, many believed that death removed someone from being judged by the gods that one was only judged during their, earthly, during their earthly life, and then once they died, they weren't going to be judged anymore. That was that. And now Peter's responding in verse 6 to the objection that since believers and unbelievers will all die, well then why would you embrace suffering for Jesus? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's how you think. But Peter's responding to that. He says in verse 5 that because God will judge the living and the dead, That is why you align your life to that of Christ. All are going to give an account of their life to God, even those who slander you in this life. But for those who've received the gospel in verse 6, though they die, they will live in the Spirit in God's presence. The gospel wasn't preached in vain. Their suffering for Christ is not in vain. Though they die, like everybody else in Christ, they will be made alive, and they will live in the presence of God. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged to embrace suffering by receiving comfort and confidence that neither those who slander you nor death itself will have the final word in the end. Ultimately, God is going to have that final word. Death cannot undo the gospel promise of resurrection. This is why we can embrace suffering as Christ did, Because in the end, we will be raised as Christ was. So brothers and sisters, we're not preparing for death and suffering. We're preparing for glory. So resolve to suffer as Christ did by leaving behind sin and living for God's will. Let's think about the second aspect of that in point number two. Living for God's will. So live for God's will. Point number two, verses seven to eleven. 
Some have attributed Martin Luther was saying, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Luther actually never said that. But we can understand how it applies to our view of the end. The point for Christians is that if we knew the end was tomorrow, we should not batten down the hatches or fulfill our bucket list, but continue doing what God has already called you to do. That's what you do if tomorrow were to be our final day. And this is exactly what Peter calls us to do in verses 7 to 11. Look right there in verses 7 to 11. He says, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. It's near because Christ has come. The time between his first coming and his second coming is now known as the last days. And in these last days, Peter is calling for an appropriate end-time lifestyle. Instead of living by the motto, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, we die, Peter calls us to embrace four aspects of end-time living as a church. And these four things are the complete opposite of all those sins that he listed there in verse 3. He's now giving us the positive side of what it means to live for God's will. So number one, we're going to break this point down into four aspects of end-time living. Number one, be sober-minded. Number one, be sober-minded. Number two, be loving. Number two, be loving. Number three, be hospitable. Be hospitable. And number four, be good stewards. Number four, be good stewards. Let's look at the first one there in verse 7. Be sober-minded. The end-time Christian does not live in unrestrained behavior or drunkenness, but is alert and sober-minded. The words for alert and sober-minded right there get at the idea of being reasonable and rational. Christians are to be clear and level-headed. We're to be those who don't get paranoid when we hear that the end is coming, nor do we party our life away as a form of escape in order to try to avoid the end. Instead, we get busy preparing with what? Prayer. We're not paranoid, nor do we party. We pray. Notice that he calls us to be sober-minded for prayer. Prayer is how we communicate with God. It's an expression of our faith in response to who God is. That's what prayer is. And just like you wouldn't want to be in a conversation with a friend who is constantly just scatterbrained and distracted all the time because the conversation would get utterly nowhere, so we should not approach our relationship with the Lord in the same way, right? We shouldn't come to God in that same way. We know that he ultimately does not come to us in that way. In fact, we have to wonder if Peter was thinking at the time of writing this, of back in the day in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, when just before, just before predicting his denial, what did Jesus say to Peter? Simon, Simon, look out. Simon has asked to sift you like wheat, but I got distracted. He doesn't say that. No, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He prayed for him that his faith may not fail. Garden of Gethsemane, next passage. In the heat of anguish, Christ is sober-minded. He knows Peter needs that prayer 
in that moment. And so praise God that Jesus was sober-minded for prayer even when he was in anguish over his looming crucifixion. Friends, in-time living is not easy. We're tempted to be so busy with work and kids' activities that we forget to pray. We're tempted by the constant chatter and late-breaking news on social media that we're distracting ourselves to death. We're tempted with all the conspiracy theories floating around and trying to wrap our heads around what's going on that's rendered us unable to engage with the Lord in sober-minded prayer. We're just distracted. It's hard to be vigilant in prayer when our minds are drunk, metaphorically, with being preoccupied with worldly things. So how can you better engage the Lord in your prayers? Number one, use the word. Use the word. Why did we give you all of those scripture references in the back of your member directory? I keep coming back to this. Some of you are like, I am so sick of hearing this all the time. Why did we give you all those scriptures? Because it helps you to focus. It helps you begin praying the will of God over God's people. It helps you to be sober-minded for prayer, to be fully engaged using the word of God in your prayers. Right? So use the Bible for your prayers. Consider taking the sermon text right during the week and then praying for that sermon text over the church or over somebody within the congregation. So for instance, how would we do that? Let's just whip it out right here in verses 7 to 11. Lord, we know that, the, that all things are coming to a close. And so, Lord, we pray that as a church, we would be characterized by being alert and sober-minded for prayer. That above all, that we would maintain constant love for one another, since we know that love covers a multitude of sins. Lord, help us to be hospitable to one another without complaining. And just as each of us have received a gift from you to serve one another, help us to be good stewards of the very grace that you have shown to us. I just prayed for the church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I just prayed for the church right there. Anybody can do that. You just have the word of God opened, and you can be praying sober-minded prayers. Secondly, we have to plan to pray. Right? We all know that if we don't plan to pray, we don't pray. And so we might say, well, I'm just going to pray whenever I go throughout my day, which is wonderful. That's awesome. But you and I both know how hard it is to actually keep our mind to be sober-minded in prayer when we have a thousand different things distracting us and affecting us spiritually. You know how difficult that that is. Jesus certainly prayed as he went, but he also had to withdraw to pray as we see in that passage with Peter just a minute ago. And so when you can withdraw from your hectic schedule to spend time with the Lord of your schedule, you're establishing for yourself a moment to get sober-minded for your prayers. Knowing the end is near should not distract us from the mission, but move us to live more dependently upon the Lord to stay engaged in the mission. What better way to do that? than prayer itself. Secondly, be loving. Not only be sober-minded, we got to be loving. Peter says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. When churches go through hard seasons, relationships can be frayed, patience wears thin, words that were once given in kindness are now harsh and inconsiderate. But for the end-time Christian, 
There is never a time that is a bad time to respond in loving one another. Never a time. Look at why. Because love can even cover a multitude of sins. Peter right here is picking up Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, and applying it, implying really it's teaching to his own generation. It applies to every generation, is what he's saying. The proverb says, hate, hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Understand, neither this proverb nor Peter himself are saying that we should just let one another go on sinning in a serious way. That's not at all what he's saying. That's not what he's getting at. Clearly, he doesn't think that because he has already kept preaching about how we leave sin behind. So we know that that's not the case. But there will be moments in our life together when someone's sin is relatively minor, when it's not a matter of illegality or injustice, but more like someone's tone being off in their response to you. That's what it's going to be like. Not every sin needs to be pointed out. If that was the case, we would not exist because <laughs> we would eat each other alive. We wouldn't. But instead, Peter's saying that in such situations, we can overlook the sins of one another in love. It's been said that love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from one caught on fire. When another brother or sister is short with you and you choose to overlook their offense, that's an act of love. And that love takes the oxygen out of the situation so the fire does not continue to burn. But why do we do this? Why do we do this? Because Christ shed his blood to cover not just a multitude of sins. Christ shed his blood to atone for every sin that we've committed. Through his death and his resurrection on the cross, Christ did away with the penalty of sin. And his love on display on that cross has covered all of our sins, always and forever. Christ didn't come to stir up conflict with us in our sin. He came to save us from our sin. Peter isn't saying that we can somehow atone for sin whenever we cover a multitude of sins, but instead we're to model Christ's love for one another by forgiving and forbearing with one another. To overlook is really getting at the idea of what it means that love covers a multitude of sins. There will be plenty of sins that we can overlook as a church in love because Christ has fully covered ours by his blood. Such love is not only going to lead us not to be hostile, it's actually going to lead us to be hospitable, the third thing that we see. Be hospitable. Be hospitable. In the first century, hospitality was crucial if you were traveling. They didn't have hotels nor motels uh, like we do today. And so when people were traveling, they were completely dependent upon somebody to be able to provide them space. Not only that, but think about how the church's expansion in the first century would have been hindered if they didn't have people ready to take the apostles in as they were out preaching the gospel. It would, have been, it would have been hindered in that. Where would the church in Philippi be without Lydia's house? Hospitality is crucial. It's crucial. It's so important that Peter and Paul both put it up there with love and prayer. It's in that list. 
But one of the things that, we can, that can often show up in showing hospitality is that we begin to grumble. We begin to complain in our hospitality. Now, you're at the end of a long week. You know what this is like. The last thing that you want to do is actually have a bunch of people over, but yet you scheduled it. And so you're back there whipping up food. You're cleaning the house to get that thing looking spick and span for everybody that's coming over. And your heart clearly is not in the right place. You know exactly how this is. You get that new couch, you're like, oh, get the kids off that couch, let's send them out, right? You're thinking about it. You're going around cleaning up after everybody. You know what it looks like to show hospitality with grumbling and complaining. I've certainly done it before. I think we probably all have. But biblically, there is more to hospitality than the mere performance of hospitality. If showing hospitality is more about showing off our home and how great of a cook that we are, then we have missed the point of hospitality altogether. In fact, it reveals how you view the gospel and how hospitable that you are. Hospitality is not about performing an act to entertain others. It's about welcoming them as Christ has welcomed you. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 7, Welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. I love the way that Sam Albury talks about this in the book that he just published, You're Not Crazy. He says this, Welcoming one another embodies and declares what Christ has done for us. Heaven's welcome becomes real in our own. When we understand that our hospitality depicts the gospel, then we're going to be less inclined to want to be grumble, but actually more grateful to God that we've got an opportunity to be able to depict the gospel to one another when our lives are stressful as we live in the end of days. So how do we do this? Well, number one, you've got to resolve to do it. You have to resolve to do it. If you are never hosp- hospitable, right, and you know kind of who you are, if, you've ne- if you're never hospitable, I want you to consider inviting one member over this week. Invite them over. Maybe invite them over this month. Maybe that's like, well, that's too soon. I've got to plan that out. Maybe invite them over over the next month. Consider who that's going to be. Write down that person. Invite them over. If you feel like, well, I feel like it's going to be a little awkward, then invite another member over to help with some of that. Welcome them into your life. Anybody can do that. Do it whenever you're busy. Involve other people in what you're doing. If you're doing laundry, might as well invite somebody over for it. If you're going to grab groceries, might as well take them along. If you've got a soccer game, why not just invite people to the soccer game? Welcoming them into our lives. And then, as you're doing it, learn to enjoy it. As it's been said, if we don't enjoy offering it, who would ever enjoy receiving it? Christ has welcomed us so that we can welcome others with gratitude instead of grumbling. And then fourthly, be good stewards. The final thing right here in verses 10 and 11. The fourth thing that Peter tells us to pursue because the end is near is to use the gifts that God has given to us to serve others. And he says that these gifts, that we don't, they don't just originate with us. But what are they? They're part of the varied grace of God. They originated with him. We cannot take credit 
for the gifts that we have been given? Ultimately, they originate with God. He's given them to us by his grace. He has assigned each of us to be good stewards of what he has given to us by his grace. We're not to hoard this grace, but instead we're to use it to serve others within the church. And Peter lists two broad categories by which we can do that. We do that through speaking, and we do that through serving. Some of you will have speaking gifts, right? Certainly we want to use those, and we want to cultivate and equip those. Others of you have serving gifts, and even those who speak clearly serve through their speaking, and that's not the only way that they serve. But I love the fact that Peter just gives us two broad categories, right? Back in, chapter, in Romans chapter 12 that you just read, that Denise just read a moment ago, Paul lists a ton of different spiritual gifts that we receive. Yet here, Peter is less concerned about you figuring out, well, which one am I? Oh, that's the one. So I'm always going to be doing that thing. He's less concerned with that. And he is more concerned with us using our gifts to glorify God in serving one another. As a church, one of the ways that we live in light of the end is by utilizing the gifts that God has given to us. All of us fall into either of these two categories. It makes it quite easy. It's like, well, do I have the gift to serve? Yep, probably do. I do have the gift to serve. And so we can serve. But the church endures to the end with believers using what God has given to them for his glory. It's in using those gifts to serve other people that it buffers us from all of the suffering that we are going to endure until Christ returns. It encourages us. It strengthens us as a church. So brothers and sisters, are you being faithful stewards of God's varied grace to you? How can you serve other brothers and sisters this week? Maybe it's through the words of God. Maybe it's serving in the strength of God where there is a need within the church. The church embraces suffering by living for God's will and being sober-minded, loving, hospitable, and being good stewards of God's varied grace that he has gifted to us. So let's be busy in being prepared to suffer for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together.